This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Hello, I'm Michael Lanspa. Thank you for joining us in our Out of the Blue podcast. Today, we're going to discuss an article by Dr. Aurora Mayoka and colleagues entitled Cardiopulmonary Resuscitation Associated Lung Edema, or CRAIL, a translational study. I'm joined today by lead author, Dr. Aurora Mayoka, a researcher and physician in the Department of Cardiovascular Medicine at Mario Negri Institute for Pharmacological Research and also a physician of the Department of Medicine and Surgery at the University of Milano Bicocca. Welcome and thank you for joining me. Thank you, Mike, for the invitation. I'm very pleased to be here. Great. Well, let's start by uh, talking, first of all, about your study here, which um, is interesting. You start off by mentioning how common lung injuries are among survivors of cardiopulmonary resuscitation, or CPR. Uh, I thought it was remarkable to read how common those injuries are. What were you hoping to find with your study? Uh, thanks, Mike. Yes, indeed. Uh, lung injury seems quite common after CPR. Of course, the proportion of lung lesions reported in literature can vary depending on the methodology used to assess them and to the definition of lung damage itself. So imaging studies using CT scan showed the highest proportion from 70 up to 90%. And patients undergoing CPR have lung lesions studied with this imaging technique. Mainly, these alterations are classified from a radiological qualitative point of view as the presence of ground glass attenuation or airspace consolidation. And also some autoptic studies show that mechanical chest compression lead to an increased proportion of lung damage compared to manual chest compression. I can say that there was no clear evidence out there about the role of different chest compression strategies and then the different pressures applied on the respiratory system on the development of lung damage. So in this study, we aim to describe the presence of lung alteration associated to CPR with a systematic approach. And we assess the role of mechanical compared to manual chest compression in the development of lung damage. We tested this hypothesis uh, in a translational study using first a porcine model of cardiac arrest and CPR. And then we look at the out-of-hospital cardiac arrest patients in our retrospective multicenter study. I really liked your approach to answer that question. You did both an animal study and a human subject study. So let's talk about the animal phase first. Uh, can you detail how you set up that experiment? Yes, so the experimental cardiac arrest was uh, organized using a model quite well established in our laboratory. We induced cardiac arrest by ventricular fibrillation and of course animals were surgically instrumented under general anesthesia and baseline measurements were recorded before cardiac arrest induction. So uh, VF was electrically induced and left untreated for two minutes. Then we started continuous chest compression with unsynchronized mechanical ventilation. Uh, we randomized animals to 18 minutes of CPR performed using a mechanical chest compression device or manual chest compression. During CPR, we administered epinephrine every five minutes and we assessed arterial blood gases. We collected respiratory mechanics and hemodynamic data, gas exchanges, and lung CT scan at the end of CPR. 
specifically, we recorded hemodynamic variables continuously during CPR and after resuscitation. We performed echocardiography at baseline and after ROSC, and we measured respiratory mechanics and uh, arterial blood gases as well as before and after CPR up to three hours after resuscitation. Lung CT scan was performed immediately after ROSC in resuscitated animals. Well, that sounds very detailed, uh, and it's uh, actually very impressive how much detail you got out of those uh, animals. Uh, how, for the human subjects, how did you select the patients? Okay, so the human study is a retrospective multicenter observational study involving three university teaching hospitals, San Gerardo Hospital in Monza, Policlinico and Iguarda in Milan. So we included patients with non-traumatic out-of-hospital cardiac arrest who received either manual or mechanical chest compression and with a lung CT scan performed within 24 hours from cardiac arrest. We excluded patients with pulmonary embolism, aspiration pneumonia, lung cancer, and any pre-existing chronic pulmonary disease. And how did you score the lung injury uh, in, in those patients? Well, lung injury was assessed uh, in lung CT scans uh, using a systematic approach with both a qualitative and a quantitative analysis. We perform a morphological analysis in the experimental study scoring the presence of specific alteration like ground glass attenuation and airspace consolidation in all lung lobes of the animals. And in both experimental and clinical study, we then use the quantitative approach, assessing lung volume, lung weight, and the percentage of inflated tissues. Finally, we use a threshold of lung density to define normal lungs as the one with an average lung density below minus 500 Huntsville unit, which is an established cutoff to discriminate between normally aerated and poorly aerated lung parenchyma. Of course, together with uh, CT variables, we evaluated also physiologic variables like gas exchanges and respiratory system compliance. So you did a pretty detailed analysis of uh, potential lung injury, looking at imaging and PF ratios, uh, lung volume, ventilator data. How did you decide or how did you determine which method of compression resulted in greater injury based on those uh, parameters? Okay, let me start with the experimental study first. This is a randomized experimental study in which animals underwent the exact same procedure, so cardiac arrest and CPR, except for the modality of chest compression use, mechanical or manual, during a, a quite long uh, CPR. We observed that mechanical chest compression led to increased lung weight, reduced lung aeration, and reduced oxygenation and compliance of the respiratory system compared to the manual chest compression. And also uh, ground glass attenuation and airspace consolidation were detected more frequently in the mechanical chest compression group. The PAO2 FIO2 ratio was significantly lower in the mechanical chest compression group compared to the manual one during CPR and after resuscitation with a return to baseline values at three hours after ROSC. As well, compliance of the respiratory system was significantly reduced after resuscitation in the mechanical chest compression group. To summarize the lung alteration observed in the experimental study, we found a higher lung weight, 
reduce aeration, reduce oxygenation, and stiffer lungs in the mechanical chest compression group. The lung weight was also negatively related to the compliance of the respiratory system, meaning that the higher the lung weight, the lower the compliance. And also, lung density show a gravitational gradient in both mechanical and manual chest compression groups, but the lung density was higher in the mechanical one at each gravitational level. With the clinical study, we enrolled 52 patients, 36 in the manual and 16 in the mechanical chest compression group. Quantitative analysis of lung CT scan show that the mean lung weight and the amount of non-aerated lung tissue were significantly higher in the mechanical chest compression group compared to the manual one. Around 37% of lungs in the mechanical chest compression group overcame the threshold of minus 500 Huntsville unit, so were classified as abnormal lungs, while a lower proportion, around 8%, was detected in the manual chest compression group. We observed an important difference also among the groups and a longer uh, CPR time and what is called the low flow time in patients undergoing mechanical chest compression. And also the longer CPR time, the higher the density of the lungs. So we also stratified patients according to the CPR time and the type of chest compression and we assessed the association with the mean lung density. We found that the patients undergoing mechanical chest compression with a prolonged CPR time showed the higher lung density compared to the other subgroups. And this suggests probably that both variables might have a key role in the development of CRAIL. I think your uh, study offers a pretty compelling argument for the potential harms of mechanical compression with regard to the lung. One of the reasons mechanical compression got widespread adoption was because of the concern about too much time spent not doing compressions. One of the things I thought was interesting was that your study also looked at some of the cardiac features while also looking at lung uh, features, including right atrial pressure variations during chest compression. Uh, can you tell me a bit about what you found with that aspect? We observed that mechanical chest compression generated a higher variation in right atrial pressure compared to manual chest compression. Indeed, the pressure swing in the right atrium was around 50 milliliters of mercury in the mechanical chest compression group compared to around 30 in the manual one during all the period of experimental CPR. And also we found a nice correlation between right atrial pressure variation and lung weight and compliance, suggesting that the higher was the pressure swing, the higher was the lung weight, and the lower the compliance of the respiratory system. Yeah, it really makes me wonder what the left atrial pressure was doing during those compressions and whether that was contributing to lung congestion. I did find it interesting that the majority of the human patients that were undergoing mechanical compressions uh, ended up crashing to ECMO, extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, while most of the manual chest compressions did not. Uh, why do you think this is? Uh, thanks for this relevant question. The point uh, you mentioned is probably a limitation of our study that we discussed, and it, it's related to the retrospective nature of the study design. According to our local clinical protocols, mechanical chest compression is used mainly in case of refractory cardiac arrest. 
So these patients after 15 minutes of refractory cardiac arrest and CPR become candidates for extracorporeal life support. And these explain the higher proportion of ECMO and the longer low flow time seen in the mechanical chest compression group. You, you make a very important point there about uh, the potential problems of retrospective studies and uh, indication biases that we all have and that you know, these patients aren't truly being randomized to mechanical versus um, manual chest compressions. And I think that's a very important point you make. Uh, let, let's talk about the physiology of cardiopulmonary resuscitation associated lung edema. Uh, and I love that acronym, CRAIL. We, we've seen lung damage related to CPR for decades, but it's really been poorly understood. I've always thought of post-resuscitation lung edema as being more related to poor mechanical pump function. You know, for example, people aren't doing good compressions and fluid backs up into the lungs. But, you know, as you noted, uh, the mechanical chest compression devices offered better hemodynamics than the manual chest compressions and still resulted in worse lung edema. Why do you speculate those mechanical chest compressions might be associated with worse CRAIL? Yes, this is a good question. In the experimental study, lung edema seems to develop during CPR. Indeed, the PaO2 FiO2 ratio was significantly lower at 15 minutes of CPR in the mechanical chest compression group. The lower oxygenation during CPR was accompanied by a higher systemic perfusion generated by the mechanical chest compression device, as we observed in our previous study. This suggests that the edema was not a post-resuscitation phenomenon, but it might develop during CPR. Also, the lung edema was not associated with a reduction in cardiac output or systolic function after resuscitation. And indeed, no differences were detected in left ventricular ejection fraction three hours post-ROS, the experimental study. We then observed an association between right atrial pressure variation and lung weight and compliance, suggesting that the higher swinging atrial pressure, the higher the lung weight and the lower the compliance of the respiratory system. The concept of the edema associated with the variation of intrathoracic pressure is close to the concept of negative pressure-induced pulmonary edema, or what was recently defined as patient self-inflicted lung injury. So the negative intrathoracic pressure causes a reduction in the interstitial pressure, and then the hydrostatic pressure gradient increases, causing transcapillary flow and alveolar flooding. The hydrostatic nature of the edema in our study was also suggested by the lack of differences in lung epithelial biomarkers, such as surfactant protein D and RAGE, between the two groups. We believe that the variation in intrathoracic pressure during chest compression plays an important role in the generation of CRAIL. Of course, there could be several other possible mechanisms still not explored causing CRAIL. And despite the two animal groups were randomized, potential unexplored confounders might have contributed to the enhancement of CRAIL. For example, the ventilation was not synchronized with chest compression. And there also could be a role of epinephrine administration in the context of adequate hemodynamic support. Now, those are excellent points. You know, and those are not only excellent points, but I think it really underscores a lot of aspects of resuscitation that the average intensivist just ignores. For example, it did not occur to me about the possibility of negative pressure pulmonary edema playing a significant role post-arrest. 
One, one thing that I have noticed in post-arrest survivors is that there's a high rate of myocardial dysfunction seen on echocardiography. For example, a person with previously known good contractility at baseline has a, an ejection fraction of perhaps 30% for several hours post-resuscitation. And a lot of post-arrest survivors receive inotrope support in the post-arrest period. And you had mentioned uh, the potential um, effects of inotrope or vasopressor support. How do you speculate those factors might contribute to CRAIL? You're right. Ejection fraction is commonly low after resuscitation. It's hard to speculate on the association between cardiac dysfunction and CRAIL. What can I say is that, as I mentioned earlier, in the experimental study, left ventricular ejection fraction and cardiac output did not differ between the two groups after ROSC. In our patient population, we couldn't compare the echocardiographic variables since we didn't have LV ejection fraction, for example, for all patients. So what we observed was a higher cardiovascular SOFA score in the mechanical chest compression group at ICU admission. And what I think is worth to remind is that 10 out of 16 patients in the mechanical chest compression group were on venous arterial ECMO. And this means that the pulmonary circulation and the heart were excluded from the circulation the heart itself uh, was not beating, and in most of the cases, the left ventricle was mechanically unloaded. So it is hard to talk about the association between cardiac function and CRAIL in such complicated setting. But of course, the presence of myocardial dysfunction might have a further impact on the development of lung edema after cardiac arrest. Yeah, no, I think those are very fascinating aspects of the, uh, of the study that need certainly further investigation. An important point here is that your data seem to make a very compelling argument that would give me pause, at least, uh, before using a mechanical compression device. Now, there's a lot of studies out there that compare mechanical versus manual compressions, and they have different outcomes. Some suggest that manual compressions are better, but acknowledge that there are logistical benefits of mechanical compressions. I thought this was really interesting that, um, that your main study from which these data are drawn suggested that mechanical compressions were better than manual compressions while driving an ambulance. So how should we incorporate the risks of CRAIL versus the risks of perfusion or uh, the operational or logistical challenges of doing compressions in pre-hospital transport? I think this is a crucial point and you're right, the superiority of mechanical over manual CPR is still a very controversial issue. But the 2020 guidelines of the American Heart Association suggest that the use of mechanical CPR devices may be beneficial in settings where high-quality manual compressions are not possible. And for example, a moving ambulance is, is the case. In this specific setting, we demonstrated that mechanical chest compression generated a higher systemic perfusion compared to manual CPR. I think that as we are dealing with cardiac arrest patients, I believe that our efforts should be always concentrated in providing high quality CPR and obviously higher hemodynamic support during CPR increases the chance of successful resuscitation. On the other side, we described also that lung edema was much more prone to develop after mechanical chest compression. We believe that our description of CRAIL added additional information that should be considered in the management of post-cardiac arrest patients. 
and also it creates an opportunity to reconsider ventilation strategies during CPR. As Richard in the editorial of the paper wrote, cardiopulmonary resuscitation-associated lung edema could be the price to pay to get the heartbeat. That's a very, very salient point. You know, one aspect that I absolutely love about your study was uh, the high adherence to, I guess, fidelity with the animal uh, compressions. You, you did those in a moving ambulance, uh, which I thought was a great way to actually emulate the limitations of, uh, of both manual and uh, mechanical compressions. I thought that was absolutely great. Um, how has this study led to changes in your group or your personal practice with regard to mechanical compressions? Have you changed anything based on what you found? Mm, well, no, it didn't actually, uh, <laughs> but uh, for sure it had some relevant piece of knowledge in the pathophysiology of heart-lung interaction during CPR that, that is probably a unexplored uh, physiologic territory. No, I, I absolutely agree. I thought your paper was uh, great food for thought, made me think a lot about the physiology of resuscitation in areas that I had previously probably glossed over. Thank you. What's the next area of resuscitation that you're hoping to explore in the future? Yes, our next step in this field will be to assess different ventilation strategies during mechanical chest compression. We hope to identify, if any, of course, an optimal ventilation strategy and PIP setting during mechanical chest compression. Well, this is just absolutely tremendous work, and I'm uh, very excited to see what else you and your group will uh, come up with. Uh, and certainly is, I think, very educational for uh, not only me, but uh, several of our listeners here to uh, think about aspects of cardiopulmonary resuscitation and uh, lung edema. This will conclude our Out of the Blue podcast. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Mayoka, for joining us in a very insightful discussion about the physiology of resuscitation and the harms of cardiopulmonary resuscitation-associated lung edema. Uh, thank you, Dr. Mayoka. Thank you. This is Michael Lance, but for the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. Thank you.